Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry once again. I'm so glad that you joined us today because we're going to look at another chapter in the Exodus story of the deliverance of God's people. We need to contemplate the connections between the Exodus story and the deliverance of God's people at the end of time, too. But before we begin, I want to urge you to get copies of the missionary booklet on Daniel 2, called History of Tomorrow, Some Things Never Change. It is by Julian Archer, who is a faithful believer in of the truth in Australia. It is available cheaply and is easy to hand out and introduce people to prophecy. It explains what Daniel 2 is all about. Now more than ever, we need to get our good literature into the hands of people. They are asking questions that they have never asked before. We have them available in quantities. The larger the quantity, the cheaper the price. Just call our office at 540-672-3553. I'll announce it again shortly. Also, we have DVD sets available of my presentations on globalism called Prophetic Secrets of the New World Order. This series is more relevant now than ever, especially since everyone knows that the New World Order is being implemented right now. This 12-part series answers many questions about the New World Order, including who really controls the reins of government, and what religious aims do the globalists have for us, and many more. You can have a copy for just $69.95 USD. It's free shipping. Also, we have a few more copies of the series Liberty of Conscience Threatened by Stephen Bohr, Hal Mayer, and Isaac Alachunji. This is available for $29.99 USD, but we'll let you have it for $25.99 USD, and also free shipping. For either of these DVD series, call our office at 540-672-3553. Now, as we begin, let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, we are such, a, such small human beings compared to your might and power. The Exodus story shows us that power in a dramatic way, but it also shows your love for your people. As we study this story today, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to teach us how we may rely on you for everything. As the world is being made ready for the final conflict, we pray that we can be ready as well 
only to fight for truth on the Lord's side. Come Holy Spirit, join us today as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of Exodus. Here is described the plague of the lice. Apparently, these were not ordinary lice. They were something more annoying, something more hurtful. We will read verses 16 and 17. And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod, and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. The word for lice is rendered in the Septuagint as mosquitoes. Some commentators call them gadflies, but the weight of evidence is in favor of rendering the original Hebrew word as mosquitoes. There are accounts of the annual great mosquito pest of Egypt, especially in the fall, usually in October, when the receding waters of the Nile leaves pools of water over the lowlands. The mosquitoes produced themselves in great numbers, and they molest especially beasts like oxen and horses, flying into their eyes and nostrils, stinging them in the most sensitive parts, and driving them to madness and fury, and sometimes even torching them to death. Just imagine what they would do to human beings if the hand of God directed them towards the people themselves. This must have been a powerful plague, for when the hand of God is against you, the effect is devastating. Listen to this from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 266. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. At the command of God, Aaron stretched out his hand, and the dust of the earth became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. God did not instruct Moses to give Pharaoh any advanced warning of the plague of the lice. He had already warned him by the last plagues, and his heart was still hard. Likewise, with the plagues at the end of time, the wicked will not be given warning in advance. Only by the word of God will anyone have a notice of the plagues beforehand. They will come as a surprise upon the world. With increasing severity, the people will groan under the pressure of the plagues. Pharaoh had been given a respite to allow him time to effect the release of the Israelites. But this respite he abused and hardened his heart. The respite given to him should have itself been a warning to expect another plague. For if the removal of the affliction causes us to harden our hearts, we should conclude that it goes away with the purpose to return, 
or to make way for something worse. Notice how this plague was inflicted upon the Egyptians. The frogs were produced out of the water, but the lice were out of the dust of the earth. For out of any part of creation, God can fetch a scourge with which to correct those that rebelled against him. He has many arrows in his quiver. Even the dust of the earth obeys him. <laughs> These lice, no doubt, were extremely irritating to the Egyptians. These tiny insects got in their hair, their eyes, their noses, and probably even inside some of their clothing. They were so numerous that they ended up in the bread dough, in their soup, and especially in the meat that they ate. They scratched the skin aggressively when they bit, and soon they had open sores from all the scratching. It was miserable. Even Pharaoh's servants, who fanned him to keep him cool, couldn't operate the fans correctly because of all the lice attacking them. And Pharaoh spent all day swatting at them. He could hardly take care of matters of state, and his aides were swatting them too. The pain and itching was excruciating. This plague was a severe blow to Egyptian idolatry, for while it lasted, no act of worship could be performed. No one could approach the altars of Egypt upon whom so impure an insect harbored, and the priest, to guard against the slightest risk of contamination, wore only linen garments and shaved their heads and bodies every day. Now let us read Exodus eight eighteen and 19. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there was lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not to, unto them, as the Lord had said. At Pharaoh's instruction, the magicians tried to do the same miracle by their enchantments. But the magicians were baffled by the plague of the lice. They could not imitate it, though they had tried. When their attempts to imitate the lice failed, no doubt they tried to remove them. This didn't work either. Thus they were forced to admit that they had been overpowered by the power of God. This is the finger of God, they said, referring to the God of heaven. This is the way the work of God was thus shown to be superior to that of Satan. God has the devil under control. He limits him both as a deceiver and as a destroyer. In other words, God sets the devil's boundaries. Job 38 verse 11. Hitherto thou shalt thou come, and no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. When Satan overwhelms by a flood of temptations, and his attacks on you seem almost unbearable, God knows how much you can bear, and he puts up a barrier, and Satan can go no farther. 
For God says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. It's a wonderful promise, isn't it? It is just as powerful today and even more so than when it was given in Scripture. This restraint put on the devil is necessarily a divine power because it was obviously more powerful and limiting to the magicians. They had to admit that they were beaten. The devil's agents, when God permitted them, could do great things, but when he prevented them, though but with his little finger, they could do absolutely nothing. The magician's inability in this lesser instance showed where they had their ability and power in the previous instances in which they seemed to have greater power. They had no power and could do nothing but what God allowed them or authorized them to do. Their power was from beneath. Satan inspired them and empowered them to imitate that which God had done and take credit for it, diminishing God's reputation. This was blasphemy. Satan always wants to diminish or destroy God's reputation. He wants to turn people against him. And he also wants to be seen as a source of power. But God will only tolerate that so long. Now God had set their boundaries. Also note that God will force, even from his enemies, sooner or later, to own their sin and their rebellion. They will acknowledge his own sovereignty and overruling power. Even those who deceived Pharaoh now said enough to undeceive him, and yet he grew more and more obstinate. Those that are not made better by God's word and providences are commonly made worse by them. From the book Great Controversy, page 662, we read the following about the final judgment at the end of the millennium. Every eye in that vast multitude is turned to behold the glory of the Son of God. With one voice the wicked hosts exclaim, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. It is not love to Jesus that inspires this utterance. The force of truth urges the words from unwilling lips. As the wicked went into their graves, so they come forth with the same enmity to Christ and the same spirit of rebellion. They are to have no new probation in which to remedy the defects of their past lives. Nothing could be gained by this. A lifetime of transgression has not softened their hearts. A second probation, were it given them, would be occupied as was the first in evading the requirements of God and exciting rebellion against him. Satan sees that his voluntary rebellion has unfitted him for heaven. He has trained his powers to war against God. The purity, peace, and harmony of heaven would be to him supreme torture. 
His accusations against the mercy and justice of God are now silenced. The reproach which he has endeavored to cast upon Jehovah rests wholly on himself. And now Satan bows down and confesses the justice of his sentence. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Exodus 8, verse 20 and 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, and stand before Pharaoh. Lo, he cometh forth to the water, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else, if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on upon thee and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thy houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground whereon they are. Appeal and warning were ineffective. So God inflicted still another judgment on Pharaoh. This time, Pharaoh was given warning that it might not be said to have come by chance. Moses is directed to rise early and meet Pharaoh when he comes forth to the river to do his oblations and devotions. Those that want to do great things for God must rise up early in the morning, as Moses did. This is the best time to commune with God and receive instructions from his word. Once the day is started, our attentions are placed on other things that we must do, and the time that it takes to spend with God to learn of His will is gone. We need the time in the morning, for this sets the whole tenor of the day. Because we spend time in the morning with God, our minds are open to His impressions throughout the day. To say or not to say this or that, or to avoid any pitfalls that the enemy may place in our way. If Pharaoh could be up early to do his superstitious devotions at the river, Moses could be up early enough to be there when he gets there. Likewise today, to meet the devil's work head on, God's servants must be up early. Why should we slumber when God calls us to stand for the truth at a time when the deception is everywhere. Also, those that would prove themselves faithful to God must not be afraid of the face of man. Moses stood before proud Pharaoh and told him that which was in the highest degree very humbling. He challenged him to let God's people go, and if he refused and continued his obstinance, he would be called upon to engage with an army of flies, which would obey God's orders when Pharaoh would not. The proud Pharaoh would be humiliated by humble flies, millions of them. God has infinite resources at his command to serve his purposes. Nature does not question or cavil and is ready to obey. 
God can call upon one element of nature to act, and then another. Isaiah 7.18 says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. <clears throat> These flies were not ordinary house flies, and they were of various types of flies. Psalm 105.31 tells us that he spake, and there came diverse sorts of flies. But the important thing to note about them was that they were large and venomous, and their bite was extremely painful to man and beast. That's Patriarchs and Prophets, page 266. They must have been like horseflies, only worse, much worse. They filled the houses of the Egyptians, and Pharaoh's palace was no exception. They swarmed on the ground, and the Egyptians suffered much from these flies. The flies were looking for flesh to bite. Imagine having a swarm of flies land on you, with many of them successfully biting you. Imagine large, painful boils erupting after a bite. Now verses 22 through 24. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, and I will put a division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. And the Lord did so. And there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies." In this plague, the Israelites were distinguished from the Egyptians. The remarkable difference made a huge impression on the Egyptians. It was like a wall was placed around the land of Goshen that the flies could not or would not enter. <clears throat> this extraordinary provision was amazing to the Egyptians. God can instruct flies to do his will to swarm and corrupt one place and avoid another. Amazing! The carve-out gave the Egyptians a message that they could understand very practically. If they were going to continue in their rebellion against God, they would be targeted by the flies or any other natural phenomena. Pharaoh must be made to know that God is the Lord in the midst of the earth, and by this it would be known beyond dispute. Swarms of flies, which seemed to us to fly at random, but were manifestly under the control of an intelligent mind, a mind that was above the direction of any man. Moses declared that the flies would come directly at the Egyptians, but they would specifically avoid the Israelites. The flies were under the direction of an infinite power, 
and this demonstration confirmed to Pharaoh that the God of the Israelites was serious about his demand to let the people go. It also said that God is not a being to be trifled with. Listen to this from Great Controversy, page 627. The plagues upon Egypt when God was about to deliver Israel were similar in character to those more terrible and extensive judgments which are to fall upon the world just before the final deliverance of God's people. The seven last plagues described by John the Revelator will not fall upon the righteous. They will be sheltered by God. Though they will be distressed, they will not suffer under the plagues that God pours out on the wicked. In other words, it is a different kind of stress than the wicked experience in the last days. The people of God will anguish over their weaknesses because they don't want to misrepresent Christ at the crucial hour. But the wicked are to suffer the just penalty for their mistreatment of God's people. Listen to this from Great Controversy, page 692. The people of God will not be free from suffering, but while persecuted and distressed, while they endure privation and suffer for want of food, they will not be left to perish. That God who cared for Elijah will not pass by one of his self-sacrificing children. He who numbers the hairs of their head will care for them, and in the time of famine they shall be satisfied. While the wicked are dying from hunger and pestilence, angels will shield the righteous and supply their wants. To him that walketh righteously is the promise, bread shall be given him, and his waters shall be sure. The poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. That's Isaiah thirty-three, fifteen, sixteen, and forty-one, seventeen. Aren't those wonderful promises? The only shelter in that day will be the angels who will protect those who are righteous. From Early Writings, page 44, we read, Satan is trying his every art to hold them where they were until the ceiling was passed, until the covering was drawn over God's people, and they were left without a shelter from the burning wrath of God in the seven last plagues. God has begun to draw this covering over his people, and it will soon be drawn over all who are to have a shelter in the day of slaughter. God will work in power for his people, and Satan will be permitted to work also. Notice that the seven last plagues are described as a day of slaughter. There will be a lot of dead bodies. These plagues poured out in the last moments of history will be more deadly than those of Egypt. The servants and worshippers of the great Jehovah, the keepers of his law and the Sabbath, will be preserved from sharing in the calamities that will fall upon the wicked. The plagues which annoy their neighbors and anger them will not approach them. 
and this will be incontestable proof that God is the Lord in the midst of the earth. The experience of the Israelites in Egypt and the experience of God's people at the end of time, when put together, appear that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the earth and through the air also, to direct that which to us seems most casual, to serve some great designed end, that he may reveal himself as strong on behalf of his people. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God will make it abundantly clear before he delivers his people, as he did in Egypt, who are the ones he has set apart for himself. Though now the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, are presently commingled, they will not always be so. Notice Malachi 3.18. Then shall ye return, and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Before the end, though they may not recognize it, the whole world will be given evidence of who are the Lord's possession. In ancient Philistia and in Greek literature, Beelzebub means the Lord of the Flies, or the God of Flies. In Egypt, which predated both Philistia and Greece, Beelzebub was specifically the fly god and was revered and reverenced as the protector from ravenous swarms of insects which infest the land at certain seasons. In other words, Satan is said to control the flies and pests of the world. The prince of the power of the air has glorified in being Beelzebub, the god of the flies. But in Egypt, God proved that even in that he is a pretender and a usurper. For even with swarms of flies, God fights against his kingdom and prevails. This plague demonstrated the impotence of the fly god to protect the Egyptians and prove the superiority of the God of heaven. So by the fourth plague, Pharaoh and the Egyptians should have sued for peace. Well, Pharaoh did sue for peace, sort of, but his offer was not good. Listen to it from Exodus 8.25. And Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. Pharaoh tried to enter into a treaty with Moses. He did not offer to surrender his captives. He offered to let them serve God and make sacrifices in the land of Egypt. He could have saved himself and his nation a lot of trouble, but his heart was obstinate. He was only willing to comply with what he could get away with. Does that sound familiar? Many times we want to know what is the least that we have to do to make it to heaven. We are not wholehearted in our devotion. We try to make a bargain with God. If God will do this, we will do that. 
But God does not bargain, at least not in matters of salvation. He requires singleness of heart, wholehearted devotion. Pharaoh is very reluctant to let the Israelites go. I suppose he he suspects that they will not come back. But Moses rejected the offer and restated his demand. Verses 26 and 27. And Moses said, It is not meet so to do, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. And lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes? And will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he shall command us. Note that God can extort a toleration of his worship, even from those that are really enemies to it. Pharaoh, under the smart of the rod, is willing that they should do sacrifice, but will allow liberty of conscience to God's people even in his own land. But he is not willing to let them do all that God has commanded. It's much the same today. Satan will let people be Christians and have liberty in a secular world. But he doesn't want them to keep the Sabbath. So he has organized an alternate day for them to worship. This substitute day will actually become the final test between those that are loyal to God and those that are loyal to the enemy. People worship on Sunday. They think they are worshiping God and obeying him, but they're really worshiping the enemy and obeying him. But Moses could not accept Pharaoh's concession. He cannot do it because God has commanded something else. This was a salvation by works plan. Likewise, God's people cannot accept this plan because God has commanded something else, a salvation by faith plan. It would be an abomination to God if the Israelites should offer the Egyptian sacrifices, and it would be an abomination to the Egyptians should they offer to God their own sacrifices as they were commanded. From Patriarchs and Prophets, page 266, we read the following. The animals which the Hebrews would be required to sacrifice were among those regarded as sacred by the Egyptians, and such was the reverence in which these creatures were held that to slay one, even accidentally, was a crime punishable by death. It would be impossible for the Hebrews to worship in Egypt without giving offense to their masters. This judgment is aimed at the entire system of Egyptian brute worship as representatives of the sun, moon, and the stars. They worship the bull, the apis, the calf, heifers, rams, goats, and other animals. The Israelites were especially a pastoral people and the severance of the land of Goshen was an evidence to Pharaoh that it was a divine judgment demonstrating the superiority of Jehovah over the gods of Egypt. 
So it was impossible that they could sacrifice in the land of Egypt without incurring the displeasure of either God or their taskmasters. Therefore Moses insisted that they go three days' journey into the wilderness as God commanded them. It is important to note that those who would offer an acceptable sacrifice to God must, in doing so, distinguish themselves from the wicked and from the profane. For we cannot have fellowship both with the Father of lights and with the works of darkness, both with Christ and with Belial. 2 Corinthians 6.14 and 15 says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light and darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? To worship truly means that they must retire from the distractions of the world and get as far away as they can from its noise and clamor. Israel cannot keep the feast of the Lord either among the brick kilns or among the flesh pots of Egypt. They have to go away from it so they can concentrate on God and his service. Though the Israelites were in the utmost degree of slavery to Pharaoh, yet in the worship of God they must observe his worship, not Pharaoh's. In this, Pharaoh is a type of Satan who has enslaved the human race in sin. Satan has his own plan of worship, but God's true people cannot accept Satan's plan. So Satan offered another alternative to what God says. And true to the pattern of typology, so did Pharaoh. Let's read it from verse 28. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that ye may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only ye shall not go very far away. Entreat for me. The enemy offers an alternative to the sinner, too, that's not very far away from the truth. He offers Sunday worship instead of worship on God's holy Sabbath day. Again, this is not what God requires. Most Christians today are not very far away from God's plan, but it still isn't what God asks of them. But Moses could not have accepted this plan either. Do not go very far away means that it will be easy for Pharaoh's armies to reach them and fit them back again. Remember, Pharaoh still has the flies that are stinging him and, the, and buzzing around his ears. He asks Moses to take them away, but Moses will not take them away unless he consents to all that he demands. So, Pharaoh is anxious to get rid of the flies, but he is not as anxious to get rid of his slaves. He is just reluctantly accommodating Moses to get relief. He is not sincere in his obedience. He is not willing that the Israelites should go out of reach. But isn't the sinner that way also? When a sinner is 
struck with the pang of conviction. He will part with his sins, yet he is loath to go very far away, for that when the fright is over, he will return to them again. We observe a struggle here between Pharaoh's convictions and his corruptions. Pharaoh's convictions said, let them go. But he sided with his corruptions against his convictions, and this was his ruin. And Moses said, Behold, I go out from thee, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Notice how ready God is to accept a sinner's change of heart, even though less than sincere. Even though Pharaoh is regretfully weak, he still humbles his heart. God readily accepts this as his best effort. After all, he wants to encourage Pharaoh to further repentance. He also wanted to show Pharaoh that the plague was not designed to bring him to ruin, but to bring him to repentance. Moses warned Pharaoh not to deal deceitfully with him. This is done because those that deal deceitfully are justly suspected of it. They must be cautioned not to return again to their folly, after God has once more spoken peace. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. If we think to cheat God by a counterfeit repentance or a fraudulent surrender of ourselves to him, we actually prove in the end that we have fatally cheated ourselves. Verse 30. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. And there remained not one. Miraculously, the flies disappeared. This shows how thoroughly God removed the plague that brought Pharaoh to humility. He graciously removed all of the flies. There was not one left in all of Egypt. The pain that the plague inflicted was gone. Verse 32, And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. So Pharaoh in his perfidy and rebellion, returned to his hardness of heart and would not let the people go. Somehow he thought God would tolerate his obstinance and let go of the matter. Pharaoh's pride would not let him part with such a feather in his cap, or in this case his crown. After all, the other nations would love to have a body of slaves to work for them. This was a sign of his power among the nations around Egypt. Also, his dominion over Israel was very useful to him. And his covetousness with this branch of his revenue, as their labors provided, was just too much for him to let go. It would mean a restructure of the whole of Egyptian society. When 
A man's lusts reign over him. They break through the strongest bounds and make him impudently presumptuous and scandalously perfidious. Let not sin therefore reign, for if we do, it will betray and hurry us to the grossest miscalculations and de absurdities. If man persists in his sins and doesn't seek reconciliation with God, God will eventually have to pour out the plagues on him. He will wet his sword. But this also implies mercy and favor if he returns from his sins. Now let us read Exodus 9, 1-4. through 4. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, and tell him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if thou refuse to let them go, and wilt hold them still, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, and upon the horses, and upon the asses, upon the camels, and upon the oxen, and upon the sheep, there shall be a very grievous murrain, and the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. And there shall nothing die of all that is the children's of Israel. Moses gave Pharaoh a warning of the next plague. Even predicting the, the disease that was to befall, their sacred animals. Pharaoh should have known that Moses could arrange with God to send another plague, but the greed of gain had a stronghold on him, and his heart was hardened time and time again. Egypt would be decimated by this next plague. In those days, wealth was reckoned as mostly in livestock. When this disease would strike the animals, Egypt would be wiped out economically. Pharaoh had seemed to relent under the former plague, but it was fake. Even though God was merciful to him and turned the flies away, he had turned on his promise and proven himself unworthy of trust. And now Moses' announcement would remind him of the former plagues, and hopefully he would relent and let the people go. Let my people go. This was still the demand, and God will have Israel released, even though Pharaoh opposes it. And the test is, whose word shall stand? Pharaoh thinks his own word will stand. He doesn't seem to realize that he's up against Jehovah, whose word cannot fail to stand. See how jealous God is for his people. He will give Egypt for their ransom, and that kingdom shall be ruined, rather than Israel not be delivered. Whatever God calls for, it is but his own. They are his people, and Pharaoh cannot hold them. He has to let them go, and he will let them go in the end. But at what cost? Moses tells Pharaoh that if he refused the hand of the Lord, immediately 
without stretching out Aaron's rod, will be upon the cattle of all kinds, should die by another pestilence. Pharaoh knew the economic implications of Moses' threat. Egypt had made Israel poor, and now God would make the Egyptians poor. The hand of God is to be acknowledged even in the sickness and death of cattle. But as further evidence of the hand of the Lord, and as evidence of the special protection of God in it, of his particular favor to his own people, he declares that none of their cattle should die, though they breathe the same air and though they drank of the same water as the Egyptian cattle. The Lord shall sever the land of Goshen so that the Israelites would not be touched by the plague. Thus the providence of God is to be acknowledged with thankfulness in the life of the cattle, for he preserves the earth, man and beast. Psalms 36, 6. Now verse 5. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. To make the warning more remarkable, the time is fixed. Tomorrow it shall be done. We know that not what any day will bring forth or what we might expect, and therefore we can't say with certainty what we will do tomorrow. We can conjecture and say that what we think we are going to do, but our, our plans can easily change by unforeseen events or interruptions or other things. But it is not so with God. His word cannot fail, even in regard to the time. Verse 6, And the Lord did the thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died, but the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. The Egyptians worshipped the cattle. As we noted, they represented many different gods. It was in Egypt that the Israelites learned to make a god of a calf. They also learned to play and to dance in Egypt as part of the central Egyptian worship. Now you see what an abomination it was for the Israelites to make a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai and act out around it. Verse 6, And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. According to the word of God, not one of the cattle of the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent messengers to Goshen to find out if God's word actually came to pass, and it was true. The Israelite animals were just as content as they were before, while all the Egyptian cattle were dead. But this was written in the word of God for us, that trusting in God and making him our refuge, we may not be afraid of the pestilence that walketh in darkness when the thousands shall fall at our side. Psalm 91, 6 and 7. Now verse 7. 
Friends, the whole world is going to oppress God's people in regard to worship. It will likely be worse than it was for Israel in Egypt, but it will be for a shorter period of time. God will send seven plagues that will cause a lot of pain and death upon the wicked and will reveal his protecting care for his persecuted people. He will deliver them by the brightness of his second coming. It is not a good thing to fight God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your protection and of your true people. When it is darkest and seems the most hopeless, that is when you will work to deliver your people. But we have to be patient and expect delay. Help us to remember that he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Go with us today. Guide our thoughts and actions and make us ready for heaven and for the trials that will come upon God's people before the end. And we will thank you and praise you in heaven throughout all eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
We hope you have been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you have just heard is called Have Thine Own Way, Lord, sung by Christian Berdahl. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Consecration. If you would like a copy of the CD, just send $16 postpaid, and we will gladly send you one. International listeners should send $20 USD. Be sure and mention the Consecration CD. The following is our Prophetic Intelligence Briefing, a feature that brings you current events in the light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis and the coming of the Lord. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month. Death toll climbs to 146 from Typhoon Rai in Philippines. Mayors plead for food amid widespread destruction. The governor of an island province in the central Philippines said Sunday at least 72 people died in the devastation wrought by Typhoon Rai in more than half of the towns that managed to contact him, bringing the death toll in the strongest typhoon to batter the country this year to at least 146. Governor Arthur Yap of Baol province said 10 others were missing and 13 injured and suggested the fatalities may still considerably increase with only 33 out of 48 mayors able to report back to him due to downed communications. Officials were trying to confirm a sizable number of deaths caused by landslides and extensive flooding elsewhere. In statements posted on Facebook, Yap ordered mayors in his province of more than 1.2 million people to invoke their emergency powers to secure food packs for large numbers of people along with drinking water. Both have been urgently sought in several hard-hit towns. 
After joining a military aerial survey of typhoon-ravaged towns, Yap said, quote, "It is very clear that the damage sustained by Baol is great and all-encompassing." He said the inspection did not cover four towns where the typhoon blew in as it rampaged through central island provinces on Thursday and Friday. The government said about 780,000 people were affected, including more than 300,000 residents. Who had to evacuate their homes? At least 64 other typhoon deaths were reported by the Disaster Response Agency, the national police, and local officials. Most were hit by falling trees and collapsed walls, drowned in flash floods, or were buried in landslides. Officials on Dinaga Islands, one of the southeastern provinces first pounded by the typhoon, separately reported 10 deaths just from a few towns. Bringing the overall fatality so far to 146. President Rodrigo Duterte flew to the region Saturday and promised two billion pesos, 40 million dollars in aid. He met officials in Maasin City in southern Leyte Province, where he was born. Duterte's family later relocated to the southern city of Davao, where he served as a longtime mayor before rising to the presidency. Quote. The moment I was born into this world, I told my mother, "Let's not stay here because this place is really prone to typhoons." Duterte told officials, "At its strongest, the typhoon pack sustained winds of 121 miles per hour and gusts of up to 168 miles per hour, making it one of the most powerful in recent years to hit the disaster-prone archipelago, which lies between the Pacific Ocean and the South China Sea." Floodwaters rose rapidly in Bohol's riverside town of Lebok, where residents were trapped on their roofs and in trees. They were rescued by coast guard the following day. On Danagat Islands, an official said the roofs of nearly all the houses, including emergency shelters, were either damaged or blown away entirely. At least 227 cities and towns lost electricity, which has since been restored in only 21 areas, officials said. Adding that three regional airports were damaged, including two that remain closed. The deaths and widespread damage left by the typhoon ahead of Christmas in the largely Roman Catholic nation brought back memories of the catastrophe inflicted by another typhoon, Haiyan, one of the most powerful on record. It hit many of the central provinces that were pummeled last week, leaving more than 6,300 people dead in November 2013. At the Vatican, Pope Francis expressed his closeness Sunday to the people of the Philippines, referencing the typhoon that destroyed many homes. About 20 storms and typhoons batter the Philippines each year. The archipelago also lies along the seismically active Pacific Ring of Fire region, making it one of the country's most susceptible to natural calamities. Quote, "It is God who holds in his hands the destiny of souls." He will not always be mocked. He will not always be trifled with. Already his judgments are in the land. Fierce and awful tempests leave destruction and death in their wake. The devouring fire lays low the desolate forest and the crowded city. Storm and shipwreck await those who journey upon the deep. Accident and calamity threaten all who travel upon the land. Hurricanes, earthquakes, sword and famine follow in quick succession. Yet the hearts of men are hardened; they recognize not the warning voice of God. 
they will not flee to the only refuge from the gathering storm. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 5, page 234. Next, with just weeks to go until 2022, the Ring of Fire is suddenly roaring to life. Why are so many earthquake swarms suddenly happening along the Ring of Fire? For those that don't know, the Ring of Fire is a series of fault zones that run roughly along the perimeter of the Pacific Ocean. 75% of the Earth's active volcanoes are located within the Ring of Fire and it accounts for more than 80% of all global earthquakes. So the fact that the Ring of Fire is starting to become so active should definitely trouble us all. As I write this, we are less than three weeks away from 2022. And as I have expressed on numerous occasions, I have such a bad feeling about 2022. So many pieces of the puzzle are starting to come together, and that includes an alarming rise in seismic activity. Nearly 250 miles west of Newport, Oregon, a place called the Blanco Fracture Zone has produced more than 60 earthquakes in 36 hours. The biggest quake in that swarm was a magnitude 5.8. The Oregon Office of Emergency has warned if a powerful 9.0 plus magnitude earthquake originates from the Cascadia subduction zone, it could unleash a tsunami of up to 100 feet in height that will impact the coastal area. Another disturbing swarm of earthquakes just hit the Rat Islands along the southern coast of Alaska. The Rat Islands are part of the Aleutian Islands, a chain of volcanic islands that results from the subduction of the Pacific Plate beneath the North American Plate. This plate boundary, the Alaska Aleutian Megathrust, has been the location of many megathrust earthquakes. The latest occurred on February 4, 1965. Today, more than 15 earthquakes have rattled the same area. Of course, the entire southern coast of Alaska is included in the Ring of Fire, and at this point the seismic activity up north has become so frequent that it never seems to stop. Meanwhile, an even more alarming swarm of earthquakes just shook Japan. The following comes from our colleagues over at Zero Hedge. Quakes first hit Mount Fuji around December 3rd. The seismic activity continued days later. On December 7th, more than 200 quakes were reported across the Tokara Islands. The largest was a 4.8 magnitude. The meteorological agency doesn't know what is causing the quake storm. But we've shown before that quake swarming near a volcano has preceded an eruption. Volcanoes in Ecuador, Peru, Guatemala, Chile, and Indonesia all sent ash high into the sky over the weekend. On Friday, we witnessed a very painful example of this here in the United States. The worst tornado disaster in the history of the state of Kentucky killed dozens of people and flattened countless buildings. More than 80 people in Kentucky were killed after tornadoes ripped across several U.S. states late Friday. Quote, I know we've lost more than 80 Kentuckians. The number is going to exceed more than 100. This is the deadliest tornado event we've ever had. Governor Andy Bashir said on CNN Sunday morning. Overall, six states were affected by the tornadoes that were spawned, and it has been documented that one family photo was sent flying 130 miles away. Our planet is going to continue to become more unstable, and we're going to see more horrific natural disasters in 2022 and beyond. With the Ring of Fire now becoming so active, those living on the West Coast should particularly be on alert. 
Scientists have been warning us that the big one is way overdue, and at some point, time will have run out, and it will finally be here. Quote, In accidents and calamities by sea and by land, in great conflagrations, in fierce tornadoes and terrific hailstorms, in tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves, and earthquakes, in every place and in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. Great Controversy 589 Next, New Patent proposes digital surveillance to vaccinate people based on social credit style scores. Patent and trademark attorneys Dr. Gail Ehrlich and Meyer Fenster of Ehrlich and Fenster recently had a U.S. patent approved for a technology that aims to surveil people via their digital activity, give them a score that defines the potential level of super-spreading activity of each individual, and then vaccinate people based on this score. The patent proposes collecting a wide range of personal information from sources such as mobile devices, apps, social media, web browsing records, payment records, medical records, employment records, the government, and surveillance cameras. It also suggests collecting highly specific personal information via these sources such as precise location data, the length of time people spend at the locations they visit, the ventilation rate of the places people visit, images of people looking at the screen of their mobile phone, sounds from the microphone in personal devices, facial recognition data. The patent proposes numerous potential surveillance applications for this data, which include detecting when people are using public transport by using geolocation and or regular start-stop movement that matches a public transportation profile, monitoring when people are washing their hands by analyzing sounds of water running or movement by a smartwatch and checking whether people are wearing a mask by analyzing images taken during calls or other looking at screen of cell phone. Once the data has been gathered, the technology outlined in the patent analyzes the data and assigns a score to their electronic device. It suggests using this score to predict the potential level of super-spreading activity of each individual and recommends vaccinating according to SCORE. Not only does the patent suggest mass electronic surveillance of people to create a social credit style SCORE that determines when they should be vaccinated, but it also proposes that the technology could be deployed as part of a dedicated mandatory app where the government may order the citizens to install a dedicated application on their smartphones or other smart devices like tablets smartwatches, smart glasses, etc., to help the government with the logistics of the vaccination procedures. The patent adds that in some embodiments of this mandatory system, the app and or the smart device is configured to inform on the user's location at all times and to communicate with adjacent smart devices via Bluetooth, for example, to assess the interactions between users, for example, vicinity between users, movement of users, etc. When it comes to factors that determine an individual score, the patent suggests that a person's profession, medical data, the nature and type of locations they visit, their frequently visited locations, and the length of time they spend at locations should be used as part of the calculation. 
In some embodiments, subjects that are prone to frequent religious or secular events, like a synagogue, a church, or a mosque, or a dancing venue, where the people are in close proximity to each other and talk, pray, sing, and or breathe deeply and or mingle more, will receive a higher score. Example, for such a contact event than those who do not frequent religious events, the patent adds. The patent was approved on August 31st and follows governments around the world implementing increasingly far-reaching surveillance measures amid the coronavirus such as vaccine passports that aim to exclude people from economic and social activities and apps that use geolocation and face recognition to police quarantine. This will be very useful to authorities when worship laws are imposed. Quote, the dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor the Sunday. The lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. In the soon coming conflict, we shall see exemplified the prophet's words. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Great Controversy, page 592. Next, only inoculated people can buy grocery, fuel. Aurangabad issues order to boost vaccination. In order to boost the vaccination drive in Aurangabad, Maharashtra, the district administration has come up with a unique solution. As the district collector passed an order stating that only vaccinated people will be able to purchase groceries, ration, gas cylinders, and fuel in the district. The order stated that only those who have received the first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine will be allowed to make purchases in the district after providing their vaccination certificate. Only vaccinated individuals can buy groceries, fuel, and gas in Aurangabad. The officials on Wednesday informed that the decision was approved by the district collector Sunil Chavan on Tuesday night where the authorities of the fair price shops, gas agencies, and petrol pump managers were directed to check the vaccination certificates of customers and then sell the products to those who were at least vaccinated with one dose. The order further instructed the sellers to ensure strict compliance with the instructions and said that strict action would be taken if found flouting the same. Speaking on the same, Aurangabad collector Shavan said, quote, if the order is not followed, the administration will take action against the persons concerned under the Disease Management Act and the Epidemic Diseases Act, he said. Earlier, the collector had passed an order to dismiss unvaccinated people from visiting tourist destinations and historic monuments in Aurangabad. The decision was announced after the vaccination figures of the district were found to be low. The collector had then placed a ban on the entry of unvaccinated individuals in order to push them to take the jab. Other measures to boost vaccination in Aurangabad. While speaking to PTI on the same, an official told that the administration had also extended the vaccination drive in the state to evening in order to provide people with more time to get jabbed. 
The official added the decision was taken after considering that most of the people in the state worked in fields during the day. Quote, Many people work in agricultural fields from morning to evening. Hence, to facilitate their inoculation, the Zilla Parishad will undertake vaccination from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. in the district. The Zilla Parishad's health officer, Sudakar Shekel, told PTI. According to the health official, the first such campaign was held on Tuesday in Kaigan village, which is located on the Arangabad Ahmednagar district border and 100 doses were administered to people. The Aurangabad District Administration has taken significant measures to improve the pace of the vaccination in the area as only 55% of the eligible population has been vaccinated so far, as compared to 74% in the entire state. At present, Aurangabad ranks 26th in terms of vaccination among 36 districts in the state. Does this even remotely sound like a trial run for the Sunday law? Why do some people say that the vaccines have nothing to do with the Sunday law crisis? Quote, And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Revelation thirteen seventeen. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.